When I get older, losing my head Many years from now Will you still be sending me a valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine If I'd been out till quarter to three Would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64 Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writer Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm lucky to have in the studio poet Ron Paget. Ron Paget is here, and um, and this is actually a pre-taped show. We're talking together here on Thursday, November 8th, but you'll be listening to it a bit later in time. Um, and so, Ron, welcome to The Living Writer Show. Uh, thank you, T. Thanks for coming. It's great to be here. <laughs> so far. <laughs> <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> um, so so you, you, um, we, uh, you picked the song that we, we just started off with. Do you want to tell us why well, I presented you with the, the Beatles CD? And that was the song that jumped out do you want to well as an as a as an old geezer now that one appealed to me because i'm 65 but all last year i found myself singing that song to myself like what in inappropriate locations or just when you were at the grocery store or what just humming it at funerals places like that (laughs) no 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 i actually sang it to my wife every morning so it came in very handy oh that's so sweet so And did she answer in the affirmative, hopefully, no, she <laughs> to actually, many of the questions? No, she just went back to sleep, usually. Oh, no. <laughs> Do you get up early to write, or is this, was it, um, like, was were you singing at sort of, are you a morning person? Uh, well, I actually live, I have, I lead two lives. Like, there used to be an old TV show, I led three lives. Um, I lead two lives. I spend seven months of the year in New York City. And I spend five months of the year in, in northern Vermont, out in the woods, way out in the woods. And is it pronounced Calais, or is it... Uh, how? Unfortunately, it's spelled like Calais, C-A-L-A-I-S, but it's pronounced locally Callus, which is a very... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty. <laughs> very unfortunate. But So we don't talk about that. We've got we've got um, Milan that looks like Milan, but just nearby it's... Milan. Milan. So, well, nearby yeah. where I am in Vermont, there, there's a place that during World War II, they changed the name to Berlin. Because they didn't want to be associated with Berlin, and so <laughs> oh, so it's still is it still spelled the same exactly way? the same way, and now they call it Berlin again. <laughs> yeah, but up in Vermont, I uh, I tend to get up quite early, uh, and I and by ten o'clock at night, I'm sound asleep because you're in the country and there's something different about the the pace of life. But in New York City, it's almost impossible to do that given the. The fact that you're surrounded with a trillion people and they're all out of their mind and everybody's jumping around and running and honking and beeping and sirens and and TV. We don't even have a TV in Vermont, so <clears throat> so it's tempting to stay up and watch the Housewives of Orange County or something. <laughs> right, Absolutely, right. even wor- even worse. Uh, so I, I'm a morning person in Vermont, and I'm not so much a morning person in New York. So two different lives. Yeah. And yeah. it's been this way, well, from reading, not to sound creepy, but from reading your biography on your website, and um, it seems like uh, you've been going to Vermont most of your your life. Like for 15 years, you and your, your wife stayed with another good, family. With a good and then, friend of ours, yeah. Fr- and then after that, you, you built your own place up there. So it's been... Yeah pretty much this duality and sometimes fr- France was part of the duality as well like where you were living yeah. in two places yeah we lived in France for a while and uh, but we've been going to Vermont every summer uh, and now that I'm retired from my regular job uh, for a more extended period of time since 1965 so do the math what's that 42 years right yeah yeah so uh, we're almost Vermonters, but not quite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, and I'm sure it, maybe Vermont's like other other places where they're very. You have to live there your whole life. It doesn't matter how many years you've got in the. <laughs> you need um, to have a great grandfather from there, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. to be a real Vermonter. <laughs> Vermonter, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm still what they call a flatlander, and uh, but I've, we've gone there so long. We know so many people. Uh, and some local people, as we call them, they're really magnificent people. So uh, we're, we're kind of accepted. That's well. I'm glad. I don't want to have to worry about you up there. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. It's you know, not to get too much onto Vermont here, but it's a very, very nice state. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a very beautiful place. 
and it has all kinds of ecological uh, sanity to it. And uh, politically, it's a very, to me, a very agreeable place too. So uh, I'm, I'm very comfortable there. I like this state a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And then New York City would probably give you an infusion of just about everything else. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid so. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, um, well, usually, Ron, um, I, I read the biography that's that's in the, the books because we're I've got um, you've brought um, three books and I've got the book How to Be Perfect. Um, that's a this new is book, your latest yeah. book, yeah. right? From yeah. Coffee House Press out this year. Yeah. Just, well, just, just this month. Just yeah. this month. OK. Yeah. Um, so amazing. So hot off the press, How to Be Perfect, um, poems by Ron Paget. So um do you mind if I read the um, the the, the, the no, bio in the back? Because then um, maybe I'll just read pieces of it. Because there's some great there's it's really okay. Ron, uh, without further ado, Ron Paget is a celebrated memoirist, translator, and and then this is to quote Peter Gizzy, thoroughly American poet coming sideways out of Whitman, Williams, and New York pop with a Tulsa twist. That's because you were you were born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, his poetry has been translated into 16 languages and has, and has appeared um, in, in many of the best places possible. Um, recent books include Joe, a memoir of Joe Brainerd, and a collection of collaborative poems, If I Were You, and a translation of prose poems by Pierre Riverdy. Yes. Saying, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> okay. That was a close call. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Ron gets to see all the grimaces here up close, um, sadly. But um, and then you've you've just won so many things. You know, like the, just a few examples: um, National Endowment from the Arts, uh, American Academy of Arts and Letters. This is the one I think is really great too. You were made an officer in the Order of Arts and Letters by the French government. Yeah. That was cool. That was cool. What does that even entail, Ron? Can you tell us? Oh, about not that? really a lot. <laughs> Excuse me. No, I, I <clears throat> pardon me. I had um, I have translated a number of French poets over the years, and um, the uh, the French consulate in New York recognized that, and they nominated me to be given this. Uh, it's just an honorary uh, title. And uh, but it's cool, you know. You go up to the the consulate, and they have a ceremony, and they pin a ribbon on you, and and uh, were other were you the, uh, were other people being made um, the the officer in the order, or were you the only officer being? I think that ribboned? night I was the only officer. There were a couple of other honorees who were being made. Uh, they have different grades. You can be the lowest grade is to be a chevalier or a knight, and then officier is above that. And then the top dog is called Commander, the commander. Ooh. <laughs> so I was in the mid range there. And Once you're an officer, can you can you hope to be a com- a commander? Oh, that's all we live for. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that call from the French government. Come on back. Come on, on back up. Yeah. So it's it's very nice actually, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It you know in the in the great scheme of things, it doesn't mean anything, but uh, it's a lot of fun anyway. It, it seems like it. And what's you know you can always use another ribbon. Oh, yeah. imagine. <laughs> I'm sure you wear it on your coat. Is that what's on your coat? I'm just no. no, actually, they give you a very elaborate ribbon with all kinds of, it's quite elaborate and beautiful and Baroque. It is green and yellow stripes with a kind of a sunburst medallion. And it's, it's a heavy thing. You pin it on you and you practically fall over. But then that's only for, I guess when you die, you wear that in your grave or something. But, but they have a little tiny, little, very discreet and beautiful little rosette pin you can wear. It's, uh, it's enamel and gold and green. It's very pretty. And you put it in your lapel. And that's the discreet one that you wear to functions. So that, so that you, you, you immediately, in a, in a very discreet way, yeah. advertise how important you are. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I bet that works well in Calais, Vermont, too. Uh, it, it don't mean a thing up there. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Down at the feed store, it just does not pull anything. <laughs> you don't get to skip ahead in line or no, 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 10% no. discount. No, no, no. No, no. no. Okay. Well, um, well, yeah, Rona, it's just like you've got so many. So that was just a short a biography. There's so many interesting things. So maybe as we're, as we're just talking through during this hour, we can... Um, touch on them because there's just yeah so many great things and hopefully um i'd love to i know the listeners would love to hear your poems and you're in town to read as well right um yes well i'm reading at uh, emu uh tomorrow night but your listeners will 
not be happy to hear this, I suppose, because it's you, useless information I for know. them. Hopefully they've already, hopefully they got a chance to hear I you and so. now it's like... I hope so. No, I'm, I'm giving first a, a slide talk uh, about the uh, the practice of poets and, and painters collaborating together on, on artworks. And, that's, and then after that, I'm giving a poetry reading of just my own work. So that's tomorrow night at EMU. Oh, that'll be great. Okay, and and um, well, I'll ask you about that that later. Okay. And because I was hoping we could talk about um, the, your collaborative work, because it seems like it's a it's um, a big part of who you are as an artist, uh, working with others, and not everyone can claim that as an artist. Um, but anyway, um, hopefully we'll get to that. So um, in in your biography also, I read that you started writing um, in spiral notebooks. You just started writing when you were a young lad. Um, can yeah. you take us to that point um, in Well, Tulsa? it was a fateful rainy afternoon in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> I asked for that. <laughs> About 1956. And <clears throat> I, was, uh, I had a little spiral notebook, kind of a stenographer's notebook, really. And uh, it was raining outside my bedroom window, and I looked out, and there was quite a wind. And the, the big, the elm tree in the front of our house was sort of fl- thrashing around in the wind. And I was feeling uh, very gloomy because a, a girl that I had a big crush on did not reciprocate my feelings. And so I was feeling very adolescent and very sorry for myself. And I looked out and saw this tree thrashing around, and, and somehow I, I identified with this tree. And um, I wrote down some uh, jottings, let's call them, uh, about how unhappy I was and how the tree was feeling unhappy too. And uh, I, I'm sorry. I actually, no, I, I actually, believe it or not, I've kept this notebook all these years, and I took it out and looked at it a couple of years ago, and and just absolutely died laughing. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to see stuff like that. The and, birth of a poet. Uh, well, something like that. <laughs> birth of a maniac also. <laughs> but um, so that was sort of the first, that, that was the impetus uh, for starting to write was I was unhappy and writing, writing it down made me happier somehow. And, uh, and then from then, actually it was about that same time too that I, I began to read books because until that time I had never read very much. I, I, I liked comic books a lot. I read every comic book I could find uh, ever since preschool. But I didn't come from a literary family at all, and we didn't have books in the house. And uh, My parents were willing to buy me whatever I wanted, but um, I didn't ask for books because I wanted like a baseball bat and things like that because I was in, in some respects a very ordinary kid. And uh, Did you have a library? <clears throat> like, Was it that you could get books at the the public library or school, and you, not, you, maybe you needed a baseball bat or yeah, no, a one, glove. Yeah, no, one could go to the library, but I didn't see any reason to go there because uh, I wanted to play baseball and ride my bike and, and do chemistry experiments and, you know, shoot my BB gun and things like that <laughs> and uh, act like an idiot, mainly. But um, <clears throat> when I got to junior high school, I had the good fortune to have an English teacher for three straight years. There's uh, seventh, eighth, and ninth grades, and uh, Miss Lily Robertson. She was one of these uh, older women who might have been characterized in those days as sort of an old battle axe was a term they often used for, <laughs> for teachers like her. And uh, <clears throat> she was very, very a, a serious and nice, devoted woman. And I, I somehow had an immense respect for her. And she encouraged me to read books. She didn't tell me what to read. She simply made, emphasized quantity. And she made me keep a list of what books I read. And I liked her, and in order to please her, I began to read books. So I began to read books about uh, hot rods, for instance, which I was very interested in, and sports cars that I was interested in, and about baseball. The Mickey Mantle story was one of the first serious <laughs> books I read. And uh, uh, Now I see what you mean by serious. Yeah. <laughs> like a yeah. serious literature. You have. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, then as I... In the, in, in the eighth grade especially, I started reading more and more and more, and, and I started reading science fiction. And that led me to books about science. And then that led me to books about philosophers. And uh, before I knew it, I was reading, uh, I started reading this Greek guy named Plato. And, uh, and that led me to another Greek guy named Homer. And I read the Iliad and the Odyssey. And so it, it was just a natural progression for, you know, and where were you getting the books at this point? I was mainly buying those from uh, uh, 
either the bus depot in downtown Tulsa that had a little revolving rack of paperbacks or, or, or a newsstand in downtown Tulsa that had books like that. But then shortly after that, I discovered a real bookstore. I mean, the, the real bookstore, and a really very good one, a place I eventually got a job, as a matter of fact. And, um, but I took, then I also discovered the public library downtown, which had, you know, was, was pretty nice. And what age was that? Are we still, like, are we at, like, ninth grade now? No, 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 story, no. By, or, then, or? by then I was about 15 or 16, and I'd take the bus downtown and, and check out books from the library. But also, I should add, I had a, a, I had a very good friend who's still a very good friend, one of my oldest and closest friends, uh, named Richard Gallup. And he lived directly across the street from me. And he was very much like me, a year older, but um, he beca- we, you know, we palled around, we played sports together, and we also uh, sort of turned each other on to books we were reading and music we were discovering. And uh, I remember Dick uh, joined a um, classical music radio, cl- uh, uh, sorry, sorry, classical record club. And every, it was like classical record of the month club. And he, one time he, uh, about the second month, he forgot to send in the card saying, don't send me the monthly selection. And he was sent um, the Brandenburg Concertos of Bach. And he got this record by accident, and we put it on and started listening to it. And I remember I fell on the floor laughing. I thought it was the funniest music I'd ever heard. I'd never heard anything like that. But shortly thereafter, it didn't seem funny. And Anyway, that's the way we sort of, that's how we, we were sort of educated each other, Dick and I did. And he's a very bright man, and and so he, he was intellectually challenging and stimulating, and uh, we were both a little nerdy, too, I should say, so we were a little group apart, you know? Yes. So I, anyway, that's but, how it all started, and Dick was starting to write also. And that's, and soon after of, of that time, maybe that you're were, you were speaking of, that's, is that when you created the White Dove Review? I started this little magazine when I was 16. Actually, Dick and I did it together with a third friend of ours from the high school, who was the boy who was the school artist, and his name oh, was great. Joe Brainerd, was his name, and he was a skinny... Uh, awkward, very sweet guy uh, who had a stutter and uh, was just an absolutely adorable person and a terrific artist. And so I uh, I invited him to be the art editor of this magazine. And so yeah, the three of us, uh, Joe and I were sixteen and Dick was seventeen. We just, just I, we started this little uh, art and literature magazine. And and who did you put print? Well, first of all, we um, Dick and I decided we we would print our own work, of course. But of we, course. <laughs> but, but we wanted to, we just wrote letters inviting living writers that we admired to send us stuff. So uh, we wrote to uh, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and E.E. E. Cummings and uh, a bunch of others. And uh, amazingly enough, Kerouac responded almost immediately with a nice letter and sent us this really nice poem. And uh, shortly thereafter, Allen Ginsberg uh, sent us this beautiful long poem that was later in his book, a poem called My Sad Self. And uh, it was astounding how many of these people that we thought were literary giants that the whole world knew about, which they really didn't quite at that time. And they were wonderful. But you knew about them in your yeah. discovery. Somehow, one of one of you had found them already and started to read. Yeah, well, we found them through the the man who ran the local bookstore that I mentioned. And and uh, before I got a job there, he one day I went in and he said, uh, "You're you looking for somebody to read, aren't you?" I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Have you have you read Kerouac?" And he said this word Kerouac, and it it sounded like he was speaking a foreign language all of a sudden. I'd never heard of this person, and I didn't know what that word Kerouac was. <laughs> right. So, so he said, oh, it's, he's all the rage. Everybody's reading this book on the road. And, and so I took it home and read it and, and went, wow, I, I see why. You know, It's a wonderful book to read when you're young like that. And, uh, and, that, and then I wrote a letter to Kerouac, care of his publisher, and said, please forward. And they did, and he wrote right back. Whoa. So that's how it started, anyway. Th- yeah, and that was the White Dove Review, and it, you did that for five years with your friends? Well, actually, five issues five over, issues. over back oh, a couple of years. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then I went, I went to university in, in New York uh, after I graduated from high school, and there I, I decided I wasn't going to do the magazine anymore because there was so much to do in New York. It was just overwhelming and wonderful uh, for me. And, to, to come out of a, a you know a fair Tulsa to go to New York City was really a blast. And is that when you um, had you already sort of decided to to did you did you say I'm a poet? Um, oh, at actually, that point, yeah. or? <laughs> <clears throat> no. Oddly enough, 
I do remember the moment, pretty much the moment when I made that decision. And I was, I was about, I was 16 when I made that decision myself. That, uh, but uh, shortly thereafter, coincidentally, uh, my father came home one day. I was out in the front yard next to that same tree I mentioned earlier. And he came home and he was walking toward the house. And he paused and he said, um, uh, Ronnie, that's what my parents call me when I was a boy. Ronnie, there's something I've been wanting to ask you. And I said, what? And he said, well, uh, just what are you going to do? Meaning, for, as a vocation. And uh, I said, uh, I'm going to be a poet. And he paused and he said, well, all right. And then he paused again. He said, can you, can you make a living at that? And I said, no, I don't think so. And I said, well, what do you, what do you, so how are you going to handle that? And I said, I don't know. I'll just figure it out as I go. And he said, all right with me. Oh. And that was really quite remarkable considering um, uh, he never graduated from high school. And, uh, and he was a bootlegger by profession. So uh, with no literary interests at all. And, and a bootlegger, then that's just the, that, that means that it was during like making... He didn't alcohol, make the booze, but he, 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 he sold it. It was illegal. Uh, the state of Oklahoma was a dry state until uh, 1959. It's hard to believe. It was actually dry before Prohibition. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. Of course, you know, there was alcohol all over the place. Uh, some, I remember some of his best customers were at one time was the mayor of the town, the chief of police, a lot of cops, and a um, number of ministers and, you know, respectable citizens. Chamber of Commerce was a big customer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was, I mean, he was a, he was a, a, a crook, but uh, he was a socially useful crook, I guess yes. you'd say. <laughs> he, was, he was very important, yeah. very important but circles. Needless and... to say, his interests were not literary. Right. And so it was, in retrospect, uh, I remember thinking, what a gift it was to have his approval. Uh, and I didn't have to struggle or fight or explain myself to my father, which was really, I think, extraordinary. Yes. Or that he was worried about you. He almost sort of just took it as, you know, well, if you're, you know, what will you do? And then you said, well, I'll just f- sort something out. Well, like the, thing, the main thing is the, the poems and then I'll sort something out. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I, I think it also said that, that he trusted me because, uh, I was a smart kid in school. I did well in school. He was very proud of me for doing well in school. He was an average student in school, but I was a, way above average, and and uh, it was a source of great pride for him. And he he trusted my even though I was completely out of my mind. Uh, he he tr- deep down he trusted my judgment. Uh, he didn't think I was a fool, and uh, so that was pretty great to have the you know for for a young man to have the endorsement of his father, especially a father like I had. He was a big macho handsome, tough guy. He really cut quite a path. And he was kind of a John Wayne kind of guy, you know, with all the good and the bad of that. And, uh, but to have the approval of someone like that was, was, uh, was, was crucial to me, I think. And, and you, and I can understand that, that definitely. Um, and you said that you had a moment that came before that where you had decided that you were going to be a poet. Can you tell us what that moment was? You know, I remember that one far less clearly, but I remember having asked myself the same question he had asked me, uh, because I, I had, up until that point, uh, no serious vocational interests whatsoever. Uh, the only exception I can think of was when I was in the ninth grade, I was toying with the idea of becoming a nuclear physicist, and because nuclear physics interested me a lot. And uh, But by the time I was 15 or 16, I had abandoned that interest, and or it had evaporated. But I had no, I never wanted to be anything normal, like a, 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 although being a poet I think is quite normal, but normal in the conventional sense of the word. Uh, insurance salesman or a doctor or, or a lawyer or anything like that. I had absolutely no, no, zero interest in any of those things. So it was a little bit like when I went to college. I really didn't want to major in anything, but of course one had to. So what do people like me do? They major in English. <laughs> and uh, so I did. I majored in English. But I, if I'd have had my druthers, I would have just taken courses and not had to be compartmentalized that or specialized like that. So it was a little bit like that. I, by default, I was an English major. 
And to some degree, by default, I was a poet too, because I really didn't want to do anything else. And and I, I did I did seem to be very uh, involved in writing poetry, and it was a sort of a lot of a lot of my life was focused on it. So, uh, but you can't. It's not a vocation, so you can't say. I'm a, I'm I'm, a, I'm going to become a poet. Right. You know? well, well, it's a vocation, but not like right. It's because because vocation means calling in some yeah, ways, right? Yeah. So I guess it is, but but it's not a calling a financially. In that sense. <laughs> it's not a financial. You, you don't hear the finances calling at all. No, right? No. Yeah, maybe maybe other people are calling, like the yeah. the lenders and the the banks. Well, well, you know what? Let's take a let's take a real short break on the Living Writers Show today. Ron Paget. Uh, we'll be right back. In the town where I was born Lived a man who sailed to sea And he told us of his life In the land of submarines So we sailed unto the sun Till we found the sea of green afternoon. Um, if you're just joining us, just tuning in, um, you're listening to The Living Writers Show. And today, Ron Paget um, is here in the studio. Um, so, Ron, will you um, will read, us, read us a poem? I'd be happy to. <clears throat> this um, is actually what they call a prose poem. Not, I'm not. I'm not sure what that is, but uh, <laughs> that's what's so great about it. Close, too. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> no it is actually. Yeah. Quite define it. And it's called <clears throat> the Woodpecker Today. The wings of the red-headed woodpecker flashed white as he landed on the deck rail, well-fed and magisterial, and he rattled off a quick succession of pecks. Then he hopped and drilled again, paused and drilled then raised his head and turned his neck to the left as if to receive a message from the sky. Then he sprang into the air and flew around the side of the house. There were two brief bursts of drilling, then silence. While he was drilling the rail, I recalled an article that explained why woodpeckers don't get headaches. Apparently, their skulls are lined with a spongy material that cushions the shock, a structure that resembles that of a football helmet. In fact, the article stated, modern football helmet design owes something to the woodpecker. As these thoughts ran through my head, for a moment I saw a small helmet materialize on the woodpecker's head, a silver Detroit Lions helmet. I hope he comes back. I'd like to get the entire uniform on him. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> Did you read that one because of the Detroit Lions? Yeah, too? <laughs> yeah, it was irresistible. <laughs> I was trying not to laugh. I was sitting away from the mic, but oh dear, that was great. Yeah, I, I well, I wrote this sometime before I knew I was coming here, so <laughs> it was it wasn't entirely opportunistic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and here's another one. <clears throat> this one doesn't have Michigan in it, except perhaps obliquely. <laughs> 
and it's called The Drink. I'm always interested in the people in films who have just had a drink thrown in their faces. Sometimes they react with uncontrollable rage, but sometimes, my favorites, they do not change their expressions at all. Instead, they raise a handkerchief or napkin and calmly dab at the offending liquid as the hurler jumps to her feet and storms away. The other people at the table are understandably uncomfortable. A woman leans over and places her hand on the sleeve of the man's jacket and says, David, you know she didn't mean it. David answers, yes, but in an ambiguous tone, the perfect adult response. But now the orchestra has resumed its amiable and lively dance music and the room is set in motion as before. Out in the parking lot, however, Elizabeth is setting fire to David's car. Yeah, this is a contemporary film. <laughs> um, thank you. And, so, and that's from the book, um, you, you Never Know? Yeah, that's in, know. <clears throat> and the previous book of mine that, that uh, the extremely kind and wonderful people at Coffee House Press did a few years ago. Yeah. And is that mostly, is that, um, cause I don't, I don't have that book, Ron. Is that, um, mostly a book of prose poems or what? Or? Well, there's some in here. It's, it's, okay. it, there are prose poems and what we call poem poems. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's, it's a mixture. Yeah. As, okay. you know, as the, the new book, How to Be Perfect is yes. as well. Yes. Yeah. Well, um. Well, these are great. I I I I love the part that I'm trying not to laugh anywhere near the the mic. For you, you can laugh. That's okay. <laughs> no, I don't want to mar the 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 experience for the listeners. Um, but uh, so so maybe let's go back a little bit to um, your life in poetry thus far <laughs> with Ron Paget on the Living Writer Show. <laughs> um, so. Uh, I, I read uh, about you that um, that you were encouraged um, to to teach poetry writing to children, uh, like right. in the late '60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot, it seems like teaching um, writing and poetry has been a, also a big component in your life, um, because you were also, um, let's see, you were uh, the you were you were the director, or you were or a facilitator of the St. Mark's Poetry Project. Yeah, I was a director for a couple, a couple of years. Yeah, and and so, but that's not working with children. So now I've like kind of jumped. Well, the sometimes hole. it felt like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I in uh, <clears throat> nineteen sixty nine. Uh, actually, it was in late sixty eight. I got a call from uh, the poet Kenneth Koch, K-O-C-H, who had been uh, my professor at Columbia and uh, were, and my mentor, and subsequently we became friends, and we worked on a lot of projects together. Kenneth had uh, accepted a challenge from a friend of his to try to teach poetry writing to children, and he had gone into some public schools in New York City, actually on the Lower East Side, a so-called disadvantaged neighborhood, and he had done this series of experiments with these kids, which he was very excited about the results. And he had called me and told me about them. And he had been doing it for about a year, I guess a school year. And so I knew what he was doing there. Uh, however, he was going on sabbatical. So, and he was going to be going off to Europe for, for a semester at least. So he called me up. He wanted somebody to continue the poetry teaching in this school. And uh, he called me. And I said, Kenneth, I... I've never taught anybody anything. I, I don't really think I want that kind of job. I, uh, what was the age, too? Like, what age? They were, they were elementary school kids. Uh, he was working mainly with the third through sixth graders. So I gave him all kinds of excuses, but, uh, but deep down, my real answer should have been, the honest answer was, I'm scared to do this. Uh, I'm going to walk into a classroom of fourth grade, New York City fourth graders and try to teach them poetry writing. I, I, maybe you can do it, but I don't think I can. So Kenneth, ever persuasive, said, look, don't say no. Just come over. and I'll, You don't have to do it. All I want you to do is just to come over and watch me do it one time. And so I said, oh, you know, he was my old friend. <laughs> I can see where this is going. This yeah. is just hold the puppy. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. And so, and like a long story short, I went over. We, we had a, I went through this whole day with him, half day there, what it was. And I saw what he did, and he came out afterwards, and he was at that time riding a little motorcycle, and because so, he lived uptown, he was going to go back home. And he jumped on his motorcycle, he put the helmet on his head, and he said, 
Ron, it's really great you're going to be taking over my classes. And off he went. <laughs> I thought, holy cow. So I did. I, oh, I took his classes over and started teaching, and I, I, taught, um, I taught for the next nine years uh, in New York and all around the country, actually. I was a guest uh, consultant, and I did a lot of teacher training and how to teach poetry to children, teach poetry writing. And then, uh, then I directed the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York for two and a half years. And then I took a job back at the, the nonprofit group that I had done the poetry teaching for. It was a wonderful group in New York called Teachers and Writers Collaborative, uh, now celebrating its 40th year. And uh, it was started by wonderful writers like Grace Paley and Muriel Rukeyser and Herb Cole and uh, L- Bob Silvers and a lot of other people. It's a wonderful group. They're still going, and, and they have a website. If I may plug them. Please, uh, yes. I think it's twc.org. But you can Google Teachers and Writers Collaborative in New York, and they have lots of resources and books for, for anybody uh, who's interested in writing. Anyway, I took a job with them as their publications director, which I did for 20 years. And edited all, all all their books, all their magazines, and whatnot. For and, 20, uh, so, yeah, so that's a huge chunk of yeah, like a commitment. Yeah, it was a very nice place to work, I have to say. And uh, and I'm still I'm on their board of directors now, and so I'm still very connected with them. But uh, <coughs> teaching poetry to children was in some ways very liberating for me. Uh, and I, I found that uh, I found that I enjoyed it actually. I, the the uh, it took an enormous amount of energy to do it, but working with these kids in these classes, we would create. Sometimes we would create these big poems together, and the, the 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 collaborative energy was so terrific. And to watch these kids just blossom before my eyes was was it was a very exhilarating and very rewarding experience, I have to say. And um, also, I was in an experimental situation. That is to say, I was funded so I could go in and do pretty much anything I wanted with these kids. So, And I had great freedom to work with them. It was at a time when really almost no one was teaching poetry writing to children, so no one knew how to do it. And uh, there weren't any rules, which made it really great. And uh, Especially and, for a poet. Yeah, and the, yeah, exactly. And the schools didn't know what to expect, and so they, they couldn't impose anything on you, any kind of regulations or rules. So, I mean, except within reason. So it was very exciting. Uh, and uh, but after nine years, I sort of burned out. I felt that I'd done everything I could. I was wrong, it turned out. But I, f- I was under the impression that I'd tried everything I could, and I was starting to repeat myself. And uh, as a writer, that's that's death. And uh, so I, that's why I went off and did other work uh, for a while. So it was very, it was really great for me though, and it somehow it made me. I don't know how to put this exactly because I haven't thought about it that much. But it made me much more comfortable uh, being who I am, actually, because um, I found that uh, I was happiest in the classroom when I was being uh, very straightforward and direct. I mean, I, I also I'm crazy and I acted up like a <laughs> lunatic, and the, I had a lot of fun with the kids. That's part of that's, but that's part of who I I, I was and secretly am. But uh, <laughs> secretly, but, but somewhat secretly, but. Uh, uh, it was very nice. Like I would go into the classroom, and I, when I first went in, I was scared to death, and so I just did some things Kenneth had done that had worked. So I just, I sort of imitated Kenneth Koch, and then I gradually sort of weaned myself off that. And uh, there were days when I, like a day, I remember this very clearly. I went into to the the classroom one day, and I had this idea for a certain type of poem or a certain way to write a poem that I thought was very interesting. I started presenting it to the kids. And I could see at a certain point that they really weren't that interested in the whole idea. And it wasn't really connecting with them. And, and you know, I, I realized suddenly that I, too, wasn't that interested in it, actually. That at home at night, alone, late, <laughs> thinking about right. it, it seemed like a good idea. In the, in the broad light of reality, it really wasn't such a good idea. And so I'm talking along, and I stopped right in the middle, and I, I just said out loud, I said, this is an incredibly boring idea. I said, <laughs> I said, I can't believe I've actually come in this classroom and tried to get you interested in this thing that actually I'm not really interested in either. Let's let's do something else. And that moment was a kind of a turnaround for me as, as a teacher. Uh, the realization, and the kids, of course, responded enormously to that. And then almost anything I had to say after that was very interesting to them. And we actually, I got them to tell me what they wanted to do that day. 
so we changed roles. I mean, I let them be the teacher, and I was the student. So it, it was a very uh, kind of liberating and, and uh, experience that allowed me to really relax as a teacher. And I think that some of that got into the writing, too, that uh, the certain kind of willingness to, uh, to change course or to roll with the punches or to, if some sort of unexpected, spontaneous moment were to arrive in the middle of writing a poem, let the poem go that way instead, instead of going with what you, you started out with that you thought was what you wanted to do. Um, let to, to relinquish control a little bit, be honest, and go with yourself. And... Um, so I think that that was a very nice experience for me and a great gift from, from those kids. Yeah, it's a gift. It seems like, uh, yeah, definitely for, for your writing as well, from the sounds of it, yeah. the change. Yeah. How interesting that you can, you, you, can you, you know that that happened as well. You feel like that, that, that happened at that time. And, and to not, because teaching writing or, or teaching can sort of be in that, come from that same creative um, energy uh, place, I think, um, as writing does. Like oh yeah, the teaching oh, and the good teachers writing. are very creative people. Yeah, and so it's interesting that you weren't like that was something that changed your work, and and so I'm thinking that you were working during this time. You were writing poems. It wasn't oh, as sure. if you were drained from this and no, no, and no. wasn't able. You weren't able to. No, I didn't. Well, I'm not I did. able to conjugate verbs right now, apparently. <laughs> well, I, I'm not grading papers right now. Anyway, so. <laughs> then why did you just get out that red pen? <laughs> well, well, you know, the great thing about that job I had teaching was that I didn't have to teach every day either. And in those days, I mean, I was living this kind of bohemian existence, and I was very lucky in having married a woman who was quite willing to live that way, uh, below the poverty line. So I was working two half days a week and supporting us with that. The pay wasn't high, but in those days, in the late 60s and early 70s, we had a very cheap apartment, and and it was just easy. It was possible to do that in New York at that time. It's not possible anymore. Of course, we did. We went without. Uh, we, I mean, we never went without anything ne- necessary, but we didn't have extra money at all, and um, most people would have, would have been horrified at, at the, our poverty level, but since my wife is uh, always, she's a very um, kind of a spiritual person, I guess you'd say. Uh, she didn't demand a lot of material things, and so uh, she was willing to put up with the lifestyle that I was uh, providing. And we had a little child, too, at the same time. <clears throat> and uh, so it was possible to get by. So I would know I was not drained by the work. And uh, I mean, it was exhausting to do. I'd come home and immediately go to bed and take a nap. <laughs> but but uh, I only had to do that two days a week. Right. And I could you know, they, I, all the rest of the time was totally free to, to write and to work with friends and go to art shows and poetry readings and movies and you know. That's a that's a, that's a good living. It that's, was it was pretty cool. That's good. Well, let's take we'll take a short break um, right now. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, the Living Writers Show. Today, Ron Paget. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back. If you're just tuning in to the Living Writers Show today, Ron Paget, um, 
uh, poet extraordinaire. Um, so, so Ron, let's let's. I've so enjoyed talking with you, but let's have a couple more poems. Okay. Well, we've been talking about kids, and uh, I thought I'd read a poem from this new book called How to Be Perfect. Uh, it's a poem called Thinking About the Moon. As a child, I thought the moon existed only at night. There it was, in the dark sky. When I saw it in daytime, I knew it was the moon, but it wasn't the real one. It was that other one. The real moon had moonlight, silver and blue. And the full moon was so big it seemed close. But to what? I didn't know I was on Earth. I, I, I've noticed that the older I get, uh, the, the more of a geezer I'm becoming, the more interested I am in, in childhood. Um, in fact, I, I'd like to read another poem that's not in this book. In fact, it's, it's a poem I wrote only a couple of months ago, uh, and I've never read it publicly. Oh, wonderful. But it's a poem that I wrote in Vermont uh, uh, during a visit uh, of my son and my daughter-in-law and my grandson. I have a grandson who's now two and a half years old. That's who the book's dedicated to. Yeah, Marcello Paget. Yeah, yeah, he's the greatest kid. <laughs> anyway, after my son, of course. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I, I wrote this poem sitting in my house in Vermont when they were visiting us, and Marcello was uh, in the next room taking his nap. And it's called The Hole in the Wall. Through the wall to my right, behind the bookcase, with some books that I first read as an adolescent, my grandson is sleeping his afternoon nap. The kind you take when you're two years old and which I'd have taken myself had I not had a cup of dark English tea. Someday I hope that he will sit where I am now and have a cup of tea and be thrilled to think his grandpa built this room, this house, and this poem, the poem for him, and in a way the room and house as well. I didn't know it then. And when he's old enough to do that, I won't know what he's become unless I live to a ripe old age, which maybe I will, who knows, and have my wits about me, at least enough of them to see what kind of man he is. I hope he's good and kind and nobody's fool, except a fool like me, a fool for him. So that's my love poem for my little, little Marcello. Oh, and it is. It is lovely. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I hope he reads it someday. Actually, he's so smart, he's going to be able to read it any minute. He's really a bright kid. He's written his first book. I'm sorry. I'm, oh, I'm, you what? I, I'm, a, I'm a total doting grandpa. But I have, uh, get out the picture. Let's I, see where it's No, I have to put this in. I have to say this. He's two and a half, and he's already written his first book. I'm not kidding. What, well, yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, he knows what a book is, of course, and, and, and he, uh, he understands that they have words and pictures and everything. He knows how they work, and he knows that people create them. And a couple of weeks ago, he said to my son, uh, Dada, I want, to, I want to make a book, my own book. And my son said, okay, got a pencil, and Marcello dictated a story. Uh, it's called a grandma story. And he dictated it to my son, and my son wrote it down on different sheets of paper. And, and Marcello said, okay, now I make the pictures. And he illustrated the book. And he knew it was a book that he made himself. And uh, it's, it's, of course, it's a work of total genius. <laughs> of course it is. Wow. <laughs> so, no, it sounds like it. I'm not, you know, I'm so, obviously uh, not biased. I'm unrelated. So, and, and <laughs> you know, he can, he can do a lot of stuff. So he'll be able to read this poem pretty soon. Pretty soon, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's on his way. Anyway, I shouldn't be blabbing on like that. No, no. How amazing, too. Like, what? And you, so you actually built that. You constructed the house, too? Like, you built yes. it with your, like, what? The, the house we started talking about in Vermont, in Vermont earlier. Yeah, my wife and I and two local carpenters, two old guys, two local guys who were friends of ours, uh, built it ourselves. We did everything, plumbing, wiring, the works. Wow. And uh, I gave up writing for two and a half summers to do that. Uh, and I think the house is by far the best poem I ever wrote. <laughs> No. It's really pretty great. <laughs> well, I'm glad it only took two summers and you got me back. But I mean, and that you love it. Well, so. me too. I, 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 after that, I realized I didn't want to be a carpenter either. <laughs> it's hard work. <laughs> you know? uh, actually, I've got one more poem. Could I read that? Is it Bastille? Uh, yeah, it's called Bastille I'm, I'm Day. I'm so glad you're going to read that one. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to read it, actually. 
Um, and it's the last one I'll, I'll read here. Oh, we've got time for a couple more, well, though, anyway. Ron. Okay, whatever you'd um, like. Anyway, it's the last poem in this book, How to Be Perfect. Um, it's called Bastille Day. The first time I saw Paris, I went to see where the Bastille had been. And though I saw the column there, I was too aware that the Bastille was not there. I did not know how to see the emptiness. People go to see the missing Twin Towers and seem to like feeling the lack of something. I do not like knowing that my mother no longer exists or the feeling of knowing. Oh, excuse me for comparing my mother to large buildings, also for talking about absence. The red and gray sky above the rooftops is darkening and the inhabitants are hastening home for dinner. I hope to see you later. Thank you. That get, that one, that's that one gets me. <laughs> you know, I like that poem too. Actually, I, you know, a lot of times my poems will start from a very silly premise or a kind of goofy idea. Um, for instance, you know, there used to be a song that, a popular song years ago. It's called "The Last Time I Saw Paris." Do you know the song at all? The last time I saw Paris, our yards, hearts were young and gay. Da 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 da. No matter how they change her, I'll remember her that way. It's a very pretty, popular song from the 1950s, I believe. And that song was going through my head. Uh, maybe because my mother and I used to sing a lot together. when we, I was an only child, and we sang. We even sang duets at home and stuff and driving in the car. But I knew a lot of pop songs from those, that era and from before. Uh, and one of them was the song, The Last Time I Saw Paris. So this was going through my head a couple of years ago. And... Instead of the last time I saw Paris, I wrote the first time I saw Paris. And that clicked me into the first time I did see Paris and the idea of going over to the Bastille, the Place de la Bastille, the square where it had stood. And I kind of thought it was going to be there. <laughs> I, right. I, I remember I, you know, later I said, how did I think that? They, of course, they tore the Bastille down. But that, that was part, that was the point, right? <laughs> <No>. Exactly. <laughs> That's why they did that. And and so anyway, that this poem started from that, and then it, the, the the idea of something gone and going and looking at a place where something was reminded me of I had just gone back down to New York uh, in in the, after nine eleven to check on my grandson and my son and everything, and uh, you know to see not my grandson but my son and just to make sure sort of things were okay, which of course they weren't, but. I went down to, to see the devastation. Uh, this was only about a month afterwards. And uh, so all this sort of got tied in together. My mother had just died. and uh, But when I sat down to write this poem, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to say. All I knew was, was the first time I saw Paris. You know, That's all I had. And then the poem kind of wrote itself in a way. And then I, of course, I, then I put the title on later after I finished. So, and I find that that's, that's how a lot of my poems start. They start off with something uh, kind of uh, trivial or even, uh, even blatantly untrue. Um, I started a poem in this book. Uh, I was driving in a car in Vermont one summer, a couple summers ago, and I turned it on and, and uh, this voice just jumped out of the dashboard at me and said, God loves you. <laughs> And I thought, I thought, nice voice I thought yeah, hello, you know, I don't know, maybe. But so, when I, so when I got home, I, I, I intentionally made a play on that. And I started a poem by saying, God hates you. <laughs> you know, so, you know, and oftentimes I'll do that. I'll start a poem out of some crazy impulse, um, even saying something that's just outrageous or ridiculous or untrue. And then letting the thing take its own course after that. And then, of course, one goes back and rewrites and changes and sort of fixes things. But uh, that's how that poem started, with just this silly tune, old tune in my head. Yeah, which is already connected to your mom. Well, it turns out right? one doesn't realize that. And then she comes that. into it. Yeah. yeah, one doesn't realize that. But it's, well, as they say, one word leads to another. <laughs> and if you just let, let them lead you, as opposed to trying to force your, your will on them, and uh, so it's uh, for me. That's that's the way I like to write. It seems like it's just let the words lead me on, and I I'm kind of the manager that kind of watches them appear, <laughs> you know? and disappear. And yeah, sometimes they disappear. Fortunately, sometimes they disappear. <laughs> it doesn't always work, you know, but um, one tries. 
Um, I was I was having um, a little laugh about the your response to um, this. This is just to say the the William Carlos Williams. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. This is. I think you say this. What the title is yours? Uh, something like this, this is, for that. This for that. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I love William Carlos Williams poetry, uh, or m- much of it. That is, and uh, so yeah, I, I had to write a poem to sort of get nasty with him of course yeah. <laughs> i don't always like you william <laughs> hey bill come on shape up here <laughs> teasing us with those plums in the icebox yeah. Yeah, exactly. the re- the listeners won't know what that is unless they know that poem though That's a, do you want would you like to i don't think i can it find or? it actually maybe okay yeah. let me see if i can well what about the coll- oh well <laughs> there's if you want. yeah well william carlos williams wrote a, a poem that is widely anthologized it's a wonderful little poem about uh a note he left on, as he left a note on the refrigerator door for his wife to find when she woke up, saying, "This is just to say I've eaten the plums that were in the ice box. They were so great. They were so delicious. They were so wonderful." <laughs> yeah, and Kenneth Koch actually likes the I idea. I had a plum. Says, yeah, says you know. Kenneth said, oh, one, a great idea is to write a poem in which you apologize for something you're really not sorry for. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, I, I wrote this. Do we have time for this? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, in response to William's poem, because, you know, you read that poem and you want a plum, too. This <laughs> sounds so good. So it wasn't just his wife who's suffering. And so this is called This for That. What will I have for breakfast? I wish I had some plums, like the ones in William's poem. He apologized to his wife for eating them, but what he did not do was apologize to those who would read his poem and also not be able to eat them. That is why I like his poem when I am not hungry. Right now, I do not like him or his poem. This is just to say that. <laughs> he was a wonderful poet, after all. I mean, really. Yeah, yeah. You, could, yeah you, couldn't, you couldn't write that if you didn't... You didn't also love him, uh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His wife was wonderful, Flossie Williams, too. Uh, uh, oh, did you, you know? Did you well, I didn't know her, but in, in 1965, I think a, a group of uh, other poets, friends of mine, drove by the Williams house in Rutherford, New Jersey, just as a kind of homage, and we parked outside, and one of us said, let's knock on the door. And so I said, not me, I'm not going up there. <laughs> was and this outing by the New York School Poets? Was this like something? Sort of, yeah. It was actually, it was, it was Ted Berrigan and, and, and Joe Travelo. Uh, we, we went by there. And uh, wow. so uh, we, went, sent, we sent Ted Berrigan's wife up to, to knock on the door. Was that Alice Notley? No, it was nope. pre-Alice. Oh, uh, okay. It okay. was San, Sandy Berrigan. And uh, Sandy went up and a very sweet woman and knocked on the door and... and William Carlos Williams' wife, Flossie, answered the door, and, and Sandy gestured to us, come on. And we went up, and Flossie Williams invited us in the house, gave us a tour of the house, said, oh, here's Bill's desk, and here's the painting he liked above the desk, and on and on like that, and sit down, and could I get you some coffee? Uh, here's some donut, here's some... Oh, she offers us cookies and beer, I remember, <laughs> in the middle of the afternoon. She was absolutely adorable person, and Bill, uh, Williams had only been dead about a year, oh. and she was just fabulous. And so we chatted. We had a lively conversation with her for, for about an hour. And then she said, in the most great way, she said, well, I think it's time for you to go now. <laughs> and, and we said, oh, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> but she was very wonderful. She was really wonderful. And even telling us it was time to go because we yes. didn't know how to get out of there. Too, right, you know? right. And uh, it was just absolutely lovely. And well, I think what a lucky guy he was. Uh, well, um, you know, well, thank you. This is this also has been absolutely lovely talking with you, um, thank you today, team. Ron. And um, and uh, so, yeah, I guess it's time to wind up here. Um, thanks for being on the Living Writer Show, Ron Paget. Um, you can you can go and uh, get the new the latest book just out this month um, from Coffee House Press, How to Be Perfect. Poems <laughs> 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 by Ron Paget. Oops. <laughs> It's great. It's a great, it's such a great title. I laughed when I saw that. Um, so thanks for listening. Thanks for um, uh, Ann Arbor. And thanks to Jesse Johnston, our um, intrepid engineer. Thanks for streaming uh, out there, uh, wherever you are, Florida, Seattle, Chicago. And uh, until next time. Flowing out
Melt like endless rain into a paper cup They slither wildly as they slip away Across the universe Pools of sorrow, waves of joy Are drifting through my opened mind Possessing and caressing me Wind inside a letterbox They tumble blindly As they make their Sports Report. You can do it all night long! On 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Okay, good Monday to you. Or Monday. What day is it? Wednesday. Wednesday. Uh, I'm, I'm, all, uh, I'm all 